All right, happy Mother's Day, and let's read Matthew 15, end times. All right. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately, after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its figs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So, you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Happy Mother's Day. There you go. All right, good morning. Everybody good? All right. Um, yeah, um, no matter how many holidays Hallmark invents and puts on Sundays, it's not going to change what I'm doing. <laughs> I have a plan, sticking to it. Um, so, uh, glad you're here. Look, I didn't want to spend like two more weeks on this topic. I want to just rip off the band-aid and just kind of lay it all out here. Um, and so today we're talking about several different ideas here. Let me, let me check my list here. Uh, we're talking about the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, um, the mark of the beast, literally, like, like uh, Arm- Armageddon, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're going to talk about this today. Let's do it. Um, because how you view these things oftentimes determines your hope for the world, how you treat other people. Um, it's a huge deal. And how much fear you actually live in. Um, I was raised in a particular tradition. Um, uh, it's called dispensationalism. We're going to talk about that this morning. And I was raised to think certain things about the future that were absolutely terrifying and painted a picture of God in a particular way. Um, I no longer believe these things, but I understand them. Um, I understand where they came from. We're going to talk a little bit this morning about where they came from. Um, I know when you bring up passages, uh, like uh, topics like eschatology, passages like Revelation, Matthew, Daniel, a lot of people, like their ears perk up and they're excited because like a lot of people have very intricate and and specific ideas about these passages and to be quite honest there's a lot of sacred cows and 
if I break one or two of them this morning, I'm sorry. Maybe it needs to happen. Maybe it's, it's a test to see if you'll hold it stronger. Okay, who knows? Um, but um, just know um, we're sort of an interdenominational community. We don't all agree on everything, and that's totally fine. Um, but I would like to offer an alternative to a lot of the things that have been believed really for the last 170 years. Um, because in the last 170 years, biblical scholars will tell you a lot of things have been added to our interpretations of the Bible, specifically having to do with eschatology, which is a big fancy word that just means end times, like the study of the end times. Like, what's going to happen? Where is this going? Um, last week, I kind of painted a picture of the first century um, Judeo-Christian model of how they viewed the world, what, what was going to happen. They believed they were living in what was called the present age and that God would do something decisive to bring about um, sort of the new world, like a restoration of all things, the way they were intended to be. And they believed that that started with the resurrection of Jesus and will end with the resurrection of the church. And they believed that we were living in between the present age, as they called it in the Old Testament, and the age to come, the kingdom of God. And that this was a time in which God was planting his kingdom in this world through the church and it was growing. Um, and they believed more would happen. Um, but their beliefs didn't necessarily align with many Christians today. And this is what I want to talk about. This is what I want to point out. Um, in the last 170 years, again, a lot of things have been added to interpretations. Um, and verse 15 through 44 have really, of Matthew 24, have really become, for American evangelicals, um, this terrifying passage about how the world's going to end and how God is going, God's people are going to be raptured. By the way, this, this painting was in my bathroom growing up here. Have you seen this? Have any, I heard that someone has seen this before. Now, have, have any of you seen this? Raise your hand. You've seen it before? A few? Okay, there's a few. This was in my bathroom growing up. Um, people coming up out of the interesting, like, thought-provoking time to stare at stuff like this. Um, and it's just, it's, a, it's sort of a famous picture um, at the end of today's sermon, I'll have some book recommendations, and one of, one of the books actually used this as the cover for their book, and it's a brilliant book. It's called The Rapture Exposed by Barbara Rossing. Um, nobody read it because it was written by a woman, but she's brilliant and, and absolutely kills it in the eschatology theological realm, and so I'm recommending that book. You'll see it at the end of, the, of this whole thing. Um, now, um, okay, so they believe basically God's people will be raptured, taken up uh, into the clouds, and the vast majority of people who who were left behind, there's the key phrase, you've been left behind, right? Um, left behind. And uh, they'd be left behind, and they would survive for seven years under immense suffering and famine and torture and terror as this Antichrist arises and all this. We're going we're gonna to talk about it. Um, and so basically, there's things you need to know about these ideas. First off, these ideas are specifically American. They really are. Um, Outside of the U.S., people don't believe these things unless they go to churches that were planted by American missionaries. Um, um, second thing you need to understand is that these ideas are new. They were, they were invented about 170, 180 years ago. Um, they were invented here. Let me tell you the history of, of these ideas. Um, basically, um, this is a picture of the 18, 1830s of a town called Port, uh, Port Glasgow, Scotland. In this town of Port Glasgow, Scotland... Um, there was, um, in the year 1830, there was um, a healing service, a, a church gathering, a Pentecostal sort of charismatic church, and they were gathering, and they were having sort of this revival, this worship ceremony that was going on for a long time, and there was a 15-year-old girl, um, here's her as an older woman, her name was Margaret McDonald, she had, she was at this thing, at the service, and she had a vision, um, and this vision that she had was very vivid, very specific, and it was that she had a vision of, of basically a two-stage return of Jesus. That Jesus was going to come and gather up all those people and take them off of the planet. It's sort of, you can see it melding with a bit of a Gnostic idea, like disembodied, like flying away to somewhere else, like dualist, flying away somewhere else. Um, and then Jesus was going to come back, wipe everyone out, and then sort of repopulate the earth. Um, which is later, that last part was kind of wiped away when this, doctrine was sort of um, amplified and made bigger. Um, she told her vision to a man named John Nelson Darby. Um, John Nelson Darby found it incredibly intriguing, began to search the scriptures, and when you have an idea and you go looking for it, as Jesus says, seek and you shall find. Like he goes searching through the scriptures and he begins to see what she's talking about, although no one before her had ever seen this. She, he begins to see it. 
in passages like Matthew 24, in like Daniel 7, Isaiah, um, Revelation 6. Um, and he begins to see these passages, and then he invents a new way of interpreting scriptures called dispensationalism, which is basically that God works in seven different dispensations. There's the dispensation of like law and grace and wrath. And he believed what this girl, uh, Margaret McDonald, this 15-year-old girl was talking about was the dispensation of wrath that God was going to pour out upon his earth. Um, and so in, the, in 1859, between 1859 and 1877, he develops this doctrine of dispensationalism, and he keeps taking trips to America, to the New World, and teaching the Americans these things. And the Americans accept these things much more than his own people did because uh, Europe, the entire continent, basically was, has ancient traditions that you don't challenge and you didn't change. Americans were all about religious freedom, and they went to, so they could believe what they wanted to believe and believe new, different things without being told what to believe. So the Americans were ripe for new ways of looking at things and new ways of thinking. Um, that's why America was, was just built. Everything was done differently than everywhere else in the world, and which is why they were so open to receiving the teachings of John Nelson Darby. So one of those Americans that was converted to John Darby's dispensationalist Christianity and this idea of a two-stage return of Jesus was a man named Cyrus Schofield. Now, um, Cyrus Schofield was an author and a writer. He was a scholar. And um, he developed what was called the, um, the Schofield Reference Bible. I have one right here. I was, I was raised using this. Um, all through college, this was the required text. Um, right at the beginning of it here, it has, it has the, uh, the name editor, C.I. Schofield, 1843 to 1921, when he was writing it and editing it. Um, and the Schofield Reference Bible was really unique because he had this new way of, of helping people study the Bible that had to do with these sort of chain references on the sides where you could pick a topic like justification and you would see, whenever you saw it, you would see a reference, go to this next passage and you'll see more about it. And you go to that passage and there's more, it links to another passage and you go there. And you can follow a word all through the Bible. And while this was really helpful, um, he also, um, all through the Schofield Reference Bible... He worked the theology of dispensationalism that Darby had taught him. And he and Schofield and Darby worked together to turn this Bible into basically a prophecy story that tells their specific beliefs about the end times, which people in Darby's homeland didn't believe. And basically, Europe wasn't teaching. The Catholic Church didn't believe it. The Protestants didn't believe it. Um, And so what happens is... um, This book, this Bible, becomes the most important single document in all of fundamentalist literature. This becomes the Bible that Christians, by and large, use more than any other text um, in all of American history. This is the Bible that was used. Um, It's the Bible that most Americans use throughout most of the 12th, uh, 20th century. And Darby and Schofield's notes were weaved into every single page of this book, and millions and millions and millions of these Bibles were sold, and still to this day are. Um, there are entire book series that are written um, based upon the notes of Darby and Schofield. There's the, the Tim LaHaye wrote the Left Behind series, um, all these books, all based on Schofield and Darby, okay? Um, however, if you go back 180 years before that, there's not a single mention in all of church history about a rapture or a two-stage return of Jesus, not one. That means something. Um, doesn't make it wrong, but it means it's suspect, um, at least, at the very least. Um, so, um, I'd like to walk you through it, because this is what I grew up with, and it's, it's honestly fun to say, it's fun to talk about, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's sort of epic. It's like a J.R. Tolkien-like thing, right? So, it goes a bit like this. The teachings of Darby and Schofield started off with what's, again, called the rapture of the church. And you get there by taking certain passages in Matthew 24, and you string them together, and it sounds like this. Then will appear uh, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven... And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds uh, from one end of the heavens to the other. And, at the com- uh, and then we skip down to verse 39, if you put these two together, at the coming of the Son of Man, two men will be in the fields, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. And when you read this, with Darby and Schofield in mind, you see it. Seek and you shall find. Open your eyes. This is what you see. Um, because once you've been primed, it's there. Okay. Now, after the rapture, uh, I was taught and, and they taught that 
there would be seven years of tribulation. These seven years of tribulation are a time when the wrath of God would be poured out upon the world, all the people who were left behind and not raptured. Um, and it comes from Revelation. There are seven scrolls that are opened. Revelation is a book called, uh, of apocalyptic writing. It's a, it's a way of, of, Jew, of writing Jewish literature. Um, and it's fascinating. It's metaphorical. And it's meant to describe things sort of in code that the Jewish people would get which nobody else would. So they could sort of send letters in the open to each other without fear of reprisal from the empire, okay? Um, it's sort of like a spy thing, right? It sounds like that. Um, now, um, seven years of global tribulation in which you see this in Matthew 24 as well, as, as Darby and Schofield would point out. Then there will be a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, uh, never to be equaled again. And then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all the nations because of me. Because of the increase of wickedness, um, the love of most will grow cold. If you string all these passages together, you can see what, what, you, what they would say John was talking about with a tribulation period, where there would be some people who might have heard the gospel, and then after all the Christians disappeared, then they believe it, right? And then they are the sort of the, the ones who are the followers of Jesus who, who have to survive the tribulation. And the only way that you would be, in the end be saved in the tribulation, they taught, was that you would have to sort of endure the wrath that was being poured out on everyone else and, and, and sort of push back against what everyone else was doing. And it goes like this um, in verses 13 and 14. But the one who stands firm to the end uh, will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Um, the end, so if they survive, if they, like, if they like stand firm and they don't reject God the whole way through, then in the end, the end will come. And the end is what's called the Battle of Armageddon. And it's, it's, it's in a specific place in the Middle East. It's the Valley of Megiddo, which was in that day a, a giant um, sort of wine press, but it had turned into a battlefield a couple of times back then. Um, and it was believed that the entire world was going to gather, all those who had survived the seven years of tribulation, and were going to wage war against Jesus who was coming from the clouds with a sword on a white horse with all the raptured Christians behind him. Just picture it. And we're riding in behind Jesus, Jesus, with a sword. Uh, and he's got a sword, and he's slaughtering people. And he kills everyone that is left, as Schofield and Darby taught. And Tim LaHaye and my entire university, Liberty University, when I went there in the late 90s. This is what they taught. This was very important to their theology. Um, it affects their politics. It affects how they interact with the world. Um, and basically, um, Jesus, with a sword, is going to kill everyone that is left, and the, the blood is going to be up to the horse's bridle for 200 miles, as it says in, in Revelation. And there's going to be a sign. Oops, did I miss that part? Oh, here we go. Uh, they were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. So everyone that's left is going to be killed. And then we're all going to leave, and the earth is going to be destroyed. And this is, this is what they taught. Um, and the sign that all of this was about to happen was there was going to be the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay? Perhaps you've heard of this. Great band name, if there's four of you. Right? Horse mask. Just ideas. Throwing ideas out. Um, here we go. Um, now, there'd be a white horse, and there's all in Revelation 6. The white horse, its rider had a bow and was given a crown. So this is basically the white horse, the rider, rider on the white horse is going to enter and cause kings to rise. And then there's a red horse, fiery red horse. Uh, its rider was given power to take peace from the earth. And so but at, the, at, the, at the revelation of the red horse, horse blech, the rider on the red horse, uh, these kings are going to go to war with each other. And then there'd be a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales. And he talks about sort of inflation and famine and foods going, food prices are going up and up and up because of all the wars and the famine. The world's getting worse and worse and worse. And then it ends with a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. Remember that for me. Hades was following close behind him. This will come into play later on a pop quiz. Um, and they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague. So a fourth of the earth is dead and all those that are left are end up being slaughtered by Jesus with a sword. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> so this is the idea that Schofield and Darby see, which started with a vision from a, a 15-year-old girl named Margaret. I, I have a question. I have many questions, but I have one question in, general, in particular. How did we get from here to there? How did we get from Jesus, who says, Peter, put that sword away. We're not going to do this. This is not how the kingdom of God enters into the world. Um, the Jesus who says, turn the other cheek when you're beaten. 
The one who says, forgive your enemies and love your enemies. The one who says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The one who says, um, who, the one who, uh, who, 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 from whom all love flows. Um, the one the one who says, turn the other cheek, not to return vengeance. The one who is revealed to Israel, uh, who, the one who revealed to Israel who God is entirely, a loving, restoring, redeeming God who, who, who loves his enemies and intends to pour his, his life out for them. How did we get from that Jesus to Jesus standing with a sword drenched in blood like a warrior who has just slaughtered all of humanity? How did we get here? It's not hard, really. When you separate the scripture from its original context and from the people who wrote it, what happens is you begin to inject your own context into it. Um, and for generations who are living through wars and famines and disease, um, through colonialism, through slavery, conquering empires, uh, much like the time of Darby and Schofield, that's the time that they were living in and writing in, you begin to see your story in passages like Matthew 24. You read it. Like, let's say, the previous generation who lived through World War II. The entire world is burning and fighting, and every factory around you that used to make sunglasses and paper plates is now making missiles and bombs and planes and weapons of war. And then you read the book of Matthew, and you get to verse chapter 24, and you're like, yep, God's about to do something. And you inject your story into it. And this, is one of, this has always been one of the big problems of modern evangelicalism is that we assume, and don't take this the wrong way, but we assume the Bible was written to us, and it wasn't. It was written to a specific audience that the author intended to write to. And instead of assuming it's to us, understand who it was written to, understand their story, what it meant for them, and then take these ideas and say, now how does this, how does this reflect itself in my world and in my life? Okay? Um, Jesus says specifically in this passage, and people tend to ignore this, he literally says, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. He like, literally says it. And somehow we take this, we make everything else literally, and we take this passage and we like, oh, that's a metaphor. No, like everything else is a metaphor. This is like literal. This is the one thing that is real. Like he's saying, he's saying, you will see what's about to happen. I'm laying it out for you. You will see this. His Jesus' disciples will see it. And they did. Everything that Jesus talks about, they experienced. All of it. Everything in the book of Revelation, everything in Matthew 24, they saw all of it. Now, to be sure, the church has always believed that there is a second coming. It's in the creeds. It's what I believe. But the idea of like a second and a third coming and the rapture and, and that Jesus is this warrior. Jesus came to save his people from the image of God as a warrior in the Old Testament. Like Jesus is revealing to us who God actually is. Um, <clears throat> so what, what, why don't we take a few minutes? Why don't we reconstruct the writings of Jesus here in his time? Um, it starts off. Matthew 24 is written to answer three questions which are asked at the very beginning of the passage by the disciples. When is the temple going to be destroyed? When will Jesus be seen as the Messiah? When will the world see you as we see you? And when will the present age be brought to its close? Things are really bad. When will they be made right again? When will this happen? Um, These are the questions. When you read this passage, this is what you're looking at. This is what you're looking for. And it's it's in every single verse of it. And the answer that Jesus has, when they ask him these three questions, the answer Jesus offers is, read the book of Daniel. He literally says this in in this passage. Daniel talked about it. He quotes Daniel, and he quotes Isaiah over and over and over and over, because the two were connected, and the two are arguing the same thing. And the arguments are very specific and particular. So if you want to understand Matthew 24, you're going to have to read some Daniel and wrestle with that. You're going to have to read some Isaiah and wrestle with that. But Jesus tells you which passages to study and understand. He literally quotes them. And when he quotes them, you're supposed to open them up and read them. First off, let's, let's, let's point a few of them. Um, in, in Matthew 24, 29, Jesus quotes the book of Isaiah. Very specifically, a, a specific passage in Isaiah that says, The sun will be darkened and the moon won't shine and the stars will fall from the sky. Now, how many of you 
Um, I mean, I see this on Facebook a lot. You know, some meteorologist says, tonight there's going to be a blood wolf supermoon, right? And then instantly you're like, these comments will be great. And you click on the comments and it's like, it's like the end is near and this and that and Jesus is about to slaughter everyone. Like that, these are all the comments from Christians who understand the Bible this way and, 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 and who have been raised this way and taught this way. Um, Isaiah, Jesus is quoting Isaiah here. The thing that Isaiah is saying is specifically about kingdoms. It is specifically not about the actual sun and the actual moon and the actual stars. In the ancient world in which Isaiah is writing, kings were considered gods. Pharaoh uh, is Pharaoh. Ra is the sun god. Um, the sun will be darkened. He's talking about kingdoms falling. And the stars, that there was a king and there was his court. They were the stars, there was the moon, his wife was the moon, and the whole thing was falling. It's sort of like when we say um, empires rise and fall. We're literally not talking about like their elevation of them at all. We're literally, that's the one thing we're not talking about is the elevation, elevation of kingdoms. And this is the one thing Isaiah is not talking about is the sky. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about kingdoms. This passage is about the kingdoms of earth rising and doing battle and falling, and what happens, and what it's all about, and why they're doing what they're doing, and how we are to respond. Right after this passage, Jesus quotes Daniel. He goes from right in from Isaiah to Daniel chapter 7, and he says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Sounds like a rapture. That's what it sounds like, because you've been conditioned to look at it this way. However, if you go back and you read Daniel... Um, the passage Jesus is quoting is in Daniel chapter 7. And he has this vision. Daniel has this vision of, of um, it's, it's specifically a vision from the point of view of heaven. He's not on the earth. He's, they had a specific cosmology that they believed heaven was straight up. And he's up in the clouds with God, in, in the realm of God looking down upon the earth. And in the vision Daniel has, the Son of God leaves the earth and appears and comes to heaven. This is not a downward movement. This is an upward movement. And he's confused by it. And there's mourning on the earth. And he doesn't know what's going on. And so he asks somebody, what does this mean? What does this mean? Uh, and, and it says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And I approached one of those standing there. And I asked him the meaning of all of this. So he told me uh, and gave me the interpretation of these things. And um, I put dot, dot, dot here because we don't have time to go into all of it. It's basically there are some, there are some what's called beasts sitting on thrones um, and the beasts are, are basically the rulers of earthly kingdoms, and they're all stripped of their power, and all of the power of the earth is given back to God's people. And these kings are weeping and mourning, and they're sad because they have lost everything that they spent their life building. And then he says, the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. He's talking about the kingdom of God, things being made right, and God has won a victory, and the Son of God is returning home from winning a victory and setting the world right again. Right again. That's what this is about. This is not about God coming down. This is about God finishing going back home after setting things the way they're supposed to be. Um, this is the vision that Daniel has. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Um, and then, after this, um, the son of, after the Son of Man coming thing, um, there is this passage right at, the, right at the opener of it that talks about, he says, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation. The abomination that causes desolation. is a, a big phrase. It's an ancient Jewish idea, um, and Jesus, and they're asking Jesus, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is all this going to happen? When are you going to become king of the world? He says, um, I want you to pay attention to what happens in the temple. Someone's going to desecrate the temple. It's going to be an abomination that happens. And he says, and it's just spoken about in the book of Daniel. He says, spoken of uh, through the prophet of Daniel. He says, it's going to be... It's going to be um, the temple's going to be desecrated, and then it's going to be abandoned. It's going to cause desolation. It's going to become desolate. Nobody's going to use it anymore because it's going to be desecrated. He says, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He says, when you see the temple being desecrated in this way, I want you to leave. I want you to run away. I want you to flee to the mountains. Now, what is Jesus talking about? This is something that actually happened. Um, about 10 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Emperor Caligula um, decides, 
I'm done with the Jewish people. I want them gone. I want them out of Rome. But I can't just slaughter them. It's frowned upon. So what am I going to do? I'm going to coax them into a war. And he takes his statue, a massive 30-foot statue, and he takes it. He's like, I'm going to take this down to Jerusalem, and I'm going to set it up in the middle of their temple. And I'm going to desecrate the temple. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is his plan. And everyone knows this is going to cause a war, and it's going to cause them to wipe out um, the Jewish people. But some of the emperors don't think this is a good move, that this is a really poor political move. And he's assassinated. And then, uh, 30 years later, it actually happens. The Roman legions surround the temple, and they desecrate it. First, they starve the people out, and they desecrate the temple, and they burn it to the ground. Um, And Jesus says, when you see this desecration of the temple, there's things I specifically don't want you to do. I don't want you to pick up your weapons and fight them. I don't want you to go to war. I have been telling you since the very beginning of the book of Matthew, the very beginning when you first started following me, that the way the kingdom enters into the world is not like earthly kingdoms and how they enter into the world. It is not established by violence. It's established by death. That is how it will be established. Not by winning, but by losing. It's a paradox, right? Um, And then he literally tells them, he goes farther, he says, then let those, when you see this happen, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let no one in the housetop go down to take anything out of the house, and let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. He says, when this happens, leave. You're done. It's over. There's no point. The temple's gone. I already explained to you, Jesus says, I am the temple anyways. And pretty soon, I will breathe the Spirit on you, and you will become, the church will become the temple. There is no, no point to this. God's land is no longer just Judea and Jerusalem and the temple. God's land is becoming the entirety of the world. God's land is now, Jesus is becoming king of everything. Not just you, not just your people, not just your land, everything. And so there is no point to stay here. And so run, flee. Don't fight. Don't fight to support this thing. There's no reason to. And if you do, things will go really bad. He says, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. He says, if you stick around, imagine how difficult that will be. Just leave. It's nothing worth saving. We are not a nationalistic people. We are the people of the kingdom of God. And we are not so consumed with one particular piece of land that we would fight and kill to defend it. The whole of the world belongs to the Messiah. This is what Jesus is telling them. So, this happened as well. The Romans surrounded Jerusalem. 30 years after Caligula tried to do this, pulled a stunt. They surrounded Jerusalem and they laid siege to it. A bunch of Jews escaped and they went to Herod. We talked about that last week. They went to Herod's uh, fortress and they were killed there. And these Jews that were left, 1.1 million of them died um, of starvation during the siege. And 97,000 of them were taken prisoner and taken away. Um, and Josephus writes about it, and Josephus says it was so terrible that when the Romans finally stormed into the city and they saw the dreadful sights that they saw there, normally they would pillage and steal and take everything and, and try to make themselves rich, but they walked in and the sights that they saw were so awful that they put their swords away and they all fell silent and they turned around and they all left. And Jesus says, um, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days were shortened. He says, if they hadn't gone in, if they, if they didn't go in when they do, like, if it continues, we'll lose everybody. But for the sake of the elect, now this is a particular phrase. The elect is God's, uh, God's people. It's Israel. It's the Jewish people. Elect from the very beginning. Chosen to bring salvation to the world. And this is what um, the scriptures are talking about when it speaks about the elect. It's specifically not talking about everyone chosen to be saved from hell and go to heaven. It is God's people that he chose to do good works and bless the world and bring salvation to the world through. That is what the elect means in the mind of the first century Christian. Um, That has since changed um, through the writings of Anselm and and Luther and Calvin. And and, uh, right now we're on a bit of a course correction. Um, The elect are, are those whom God has chosen to use to bring salvation to the world. That is who they are. Um, and every single time the Jewish people fall under the boots of their oppressor, there is a remnant, is the biblical language. A remnant is always saved to continue to do the work of God and to repent and to set things right 
and to continue forward. And this is what he's talking about. Once again, the idea of the, the, the elect, a remnant of the elect, being kept behind to continue to do the will of God. Um, and so, um, as we move forward, let's see, where are we at here? Where are the days? Um, Jesus has a specific response. When all of this happens, and this terrible thing, terror is falling upon you guys, there's a way I want you to respond. I want you to keep your, keep your ears to the ground, keep your eyes open, and watch, because here's what happens. Um, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's a Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Even God's people will, will follow these other people, these other kings, as they always kind of have. Um, see, I have told you ahead of time. What he's saying is, when things, when things get really bad, when things get difficult, there are always people rising up and saying, this is the way. This will make it right. This is what we should do. We should gather up our massive army and just kill them all. Let's slaughter them all. And there were plenty of people who, who took up arms to fight the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, other people will stand up and claim to be Savior. And they will claim they can bring peace. And he's not just talking about amongst the Jewish people. He says also in the world. Because there was all kinds of kings and emperors that were rising up, beasts on thrones that were rising up and saying, and saying, I know how to set things right and bring ultimate peace to the world. If everybody was Roman, and if everybody was just like us, why don't we just gather a giant army and conquer all these lands and make them all Roman? And when everybody's Roman, everybody will be at peace. It's Pax Romana. It's peace through Rome. And Jesus, no, no, no. It's, 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 the Christian said it's Pax Christi. It's peace through Christ. Peace through the cross. It's peace through a life that, that affirms that Jesus' way is the only way. He says, so when people rise up and tell you, here's what you should do, I want you to listen to them, and I want you to listen to Jesus, and I want you to compare the two. Always follow Jesus. If they're teaching anything opposite of Jesus, reject it. Every time, throughout American history, throughout world history, every time there is a crisis, there is a threat, there is always some leader who rises up and says, here's what we should do. We should do this. Compare those, that leader's words with the words of Christ. And if they do not align with, with the cross, with the cruciform way of Christianity, reject it outright. They are not the Savior. That is not the path. And it might make perfect sense. It might make perfect sense um, to do these things that they're declaring that you should do. Logically, yeah, that is a great way to stop what's happening here. Um, but, but the fact is, the message of the cross, as Paul said, is foolishness to those who don't believe. But for those of us who understand it, and who have faith and believe it, it is salvation. The only way things can be set right is not that way. It is the way of Jesus. That is how things will be made right. No matter how, no matter how scary they sound, this is the way forward, the path, of cross, the path of Christ. All right, we're doing all right. Good, okay. Um, this is particularly important for Matthew and Matthew's audience. Again, Matthew was written around, I'm being conservative here, around 90 AD. Um, at the same time, John is writing his book of Revelation. Same exact time, these things are being written. And there is an emperor on the throne. His name is Domitian. Here's a statue of Domitian. Around 70 AD, this was carved. Um, and here's the thing. The Bible is a book about who is king. That's what the Bible is ultimately about. From Genesis to Revelation, it is a book about who is the rightful king of the world, and who is the one person all of humanity should follow? That is the question being asked from the beginning of Scripture to the very end. In the Old Testament, the answer is Yahweh, who has given us his law and shown us, revealed himself to us, how we should be, and has given us a job and a vocation. In the New Testament, Yahweh is revealed to be Jesus in the flesh. And the argument of the New Testament is that Jesus is king, and that we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. However, in, the, in their day, in Matthew's day, in John's day, in 70 AD, when this book of Matthew is being written, there's a man named Domitian on the throne who demands that you worship him as a god who has, who, has, um, who has said and promised that he can bring peace through military might, extending and conquering all of the world and making them all Roman, all speak the same language, and all worship him. The Christians called this man the dragon, okay? Uh, his name in, uh, in ancient Greek is uh, it's kind of important uh, for what we're doing here. Autocrator. Kaiser uh, Domitianus Sebastos Germanicus. Um, the early Christians knew uh, they were a part of, you know, the Roman Empire. They were in the Roman Empire. And in, in Greek, um, the, the language of the empire, the, 
the letters of people's names had numeric value. And if you take their numeric value, their name has a specific number. And John takes the name of Emperor Domitian, his entire name, and spells it all out and says, it is the one whose name equals 666. He literally says this. Um, funny thing is, um, the same thing applies to Nero. When you add Nero's name up, it comes to the same number. This number is an ancient, it just happens to be, an ancient number that the Jewish people use to describe men like Goliath, whose spear was a measure of six, whose shield was a measure of six, whose weights, like the weight of his, of his armor, was a weight of six. Um, basically saying, he's evil. Seven was the number of perfection. A guy covered in three different sixes, that is evil incarnate. And John points out, look, look, this guy is a beast. The, the Christians called him the dragon. John calls him the beast. Just like Daniel called the rulers of the world in their day. Okay? Um, and so John writes, and he says, The beast also forced all the people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast uh, or the number of its name. He's like laying it all out for you. Add it all up, figure out who I'm talking about. John can't speak freely because this letter is going all through the Roman Empire. And anyone caught with it, if it's just written in plain Greek, um, it's going to be a problem. They're going to be killed and the the letter is going to be confiscated. But this needs to go through all the churches from John. And what John is talking about here is something specific that Emperor Domitian did. He made a declaration that anyone who wanted to even buy or sell anything in the marketplace needed to worship him as God. And so he had a priest, and he had an altar at the entrance to every agora, the marketplace, the Roman marketplace. And you would walk over, and you would buy some incense from the priest, of course, <laughs> you have to pay for it. And then, and then you burn it and, it, and the offering goes up, and you say your pledge to Caesar. Um, and then the priest puts the mark of the beast on your head or on your right hand. And then you can buy and sell. And the Christians refused to. So they were literally threatened with starvation. They couldn't do business. They had to become their own like little governments and people. And this is how they had to survive. And John is basically writing, telling the Christians, I want you to know who I'm talking about. This guy is not our Savior. He is not our Lord. And then you read that and you're like, well, of course, of course he's not our Savior. Jesus is Savior. Why would John even need to write this? Because there were seven particular churches in the Roman Empire at the time that were buying in, that were joining up with the Roman Empire for power and prestige so that they could have seat at the table and the ear of the emperor and tell him, you know, here's what you, I think you should do. And the things that financially benefited them. And they were willing to sort of worship the emperor and be a part of the empire while worshiping Jesus and being a part of the kingdom of God. And John writes and says, you heretics, you can't do this. This is not how the kingdom of God emperors. You, you don't partner with earthly governments and kings to bring about the kingdom of God. That is not how it works. You bring about the kingdom of God by being the presence of God in the world and serving one king and only one king. And so John writes to them, Emperor Domitian demanded worship. He demanded worship so much and in a greater way than any other emperor that he actually fashioned his own Olympic games centered around the worship of, guess who, Domitian. And he had a hippodrome built, Domitian's Hippodrome, of course, Um, fancy name. Um, And it was built for the Domitian games, all held in honor of him, where all the Roman people would gather and watch people race and, and, and give all praise and glory and honor to uh, to Domitian, whom they called the son of God, like the king. This is who they called. And, and there's these people gathered, and there's all kinds of games that are played. Um, if you read the book of Revelation, and you study the, uh, the Domitian games, the two intertwine and intersect on so many levels. There was this, people who would dress up as these mythological Greek gods. One of the gods was called Nike, like the swoosh. Um, um, and, and the god Nike was like a lion with like wings. Um, and he would run around the hippodrome and he would say, Rome is the victor. Rome was the victor. Long live Rome. Rome will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. And the people, so be it. Amen. Right? Um, and if you read the book of, of Revelation, John has this same beast betraying the empire and flying high above Rome, announcing Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the victor. Earthly governments have fallen, and he's describing the kingdom of God will now reign forever and ever and ever. Um, one of the biggest parts of the, of the Domitian games, one of the most fascinating things, the highlights of the Domitian game was a horse race uh, at the very end of it between, you guessed it, 
four different colored horses. There was a white horse, there was a black horse, there was a tan horse, a pale horse, and a red horse. Um, and they, they would race around the hippodrome, around with all the people cheering and cheering and cheering. And John takes this imagery and he puts it right into his book and says, this guy is a phony. This guy is not the real ruler of anything or anyone. Don't be fooled. And he, he describes the pale horse with its rider was death. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. Um, after the horse race, people dressed like Hades, ma- Hades in Hades masks, the, the god of death, would run out and grab all the dead bodies by the feet and drag them off down below the floors of it into the pits. This is what John is describing. This stuff happened. And the whole reason he's writing this is these Christians were living in tribulation. And they were terrified. And they want to take up arms and they want, to, they want to fight and they want to kill and they want to slay the dragon. But that is not the option they're given. It's not the option at all. And John writes to them and he says, look, when you see them worshiping and declaring holy is holy and, and wonderful and great is Domitian... I have another picture for you. And John describes this worship service going on in heaven. He says, yeah, there's, there's people gathered around the throne. And then there's like, not just one layer, there's like multi-layers of people gathered around. And there's beasts under the sea that are worshiping. And not just that, in the air, the beasts of the air are worshiping. And you look up, and the beasts, like all the creatures in heaven are all worshiping. And all of creation is worshiping one person, and it is Jesus. And it doesn't matter how many people are gathered around this this." this giant uh, pagan worship celebration for this egomaniac, all of the world will recognize in the end that Jesus is the one we should follow, that he is the only one that we should follow. See, Matthew 24, Revelation, Daniel, these books were not written to inspire fear and terror in you or your children. That is not why they were written. They were written to inspire hope, but they were also written to create a sense of urgency that when things get difficult... Don't turn your back on the path of Jesus. Don't buy into what they're telling you to do. Listen to Christ. Follow the Spirit of God. Keep worshiping Jesus. Keep the faith and follow the path of Jesus that Jesus lived and laid out before us. Don't buy in. It's going to be very difficult, but don't buy into it. Into their fear, and this is what you should do. Here's how you should respond. Don't do it. These passages are a bit of a wake-up call for each of us because the only hope that we have in the world where, where empires and kings are violently clashing is that Jesus is our king. That is the only hope that we have. That is it. These passages don't teach an easy comfort, but, but a hope that knows the reality of terror and evil and still testifies to God's love in the face of all that evil and terror in the world. That is what these passages are testifying to. That in the face of incredible terror, we are the face of perfect love. That is what we are called to be. Um, and while the world is expecting um, a lion, that's what the world is expecting, a lion, right, to, to, to rise up and just slaughter and kill and end the lives of our enemies, that is not what we are given in the book of Revelation. We're given a lamb, a weak creature who is slain, not just a lamb, a lamb who was slain. But somehow this lamb stays amongst us and he continues to teach us the power of nonviolent love to change the world. And in the end of history, the lamb somehow conquers the beast and the lamb sits on the throne from which a river flows out to bring healing waters to the rest of the world. Somehow the lamb that it was slain conquers the beast and sits on the throne and rules the world in peace and beauty forever and ever and ever. And that is what we are given. There's this, there's this poet. Um, her name was Kathleen Norris. And she says, God wills to restore this world to beauty we can scarcely imagine. When we see, when we turn on the television and we see violence and terror that we could scarcely imagine in our lifetime and atrocities that we could scarcely imagine, we are to be a people who understand that God intends to bring beauty that we can scarcely imagine. And instead of joining in, we stand firm against, and we are the presence of God bringing healing and restoration, laying down our lives if necessary. There still is a place for the martyr in the world. We cannot forget that. We have chosen so often, evangelicalism has rejected the role of the martyr. No, no, I, I'm following Jesus, but just in case, I've got a backup plan, a very violent backup plan. Is there no place for the martyr anymore? Is there not? Is, 
is there no place for the path of the cross? That's, that's what the early church is telling us. There is a place for it. And for too long, these passages have been used by political opportunists to scare the church and to support war and violence and all of the things that these passages were written to save us from. And they take them and twist them around and make it into something that, that they use to make us support these things. We are a people of the future. We live as the world will be in the present. We support the things that will be. And we fight against the things that will not be. That is who we are. That is what we are doing here. This is not about an inevitable doomsday for the earth or about the rapture. It is, it is, if your greatest dream is the destruction of your enemies, that, they, that you would be pulled away while they would endure seven years of famine and tribulation and torture, if that is your greatest dream for unbelievers, you have missed Jesus entirely. You missed it. I'm calling you back. There's something better, much more beautiful, that is lighter and easier to carry. There's much more than that. These passages are not just something, not just something in the future. These are things that happened and that, we, that are happening now that we can take part in. It is a way to react. It's about seeing the Lamb of God beside you in every moment of your life because, um, because God wills to restore this world to a beauty we can scarcely imagine. And here's the last, the last thing to say. Um, communion servers, you guys can go ahead and gather the communion and spread around the room. The most important part, do we have communion servers today? Yeah, I got a couple. One, two, three. Yeah, okay, we'll get to go. Um, now, why is all of this here in Matthew 24? Things were going so well. Why all of this craziness? Because in the very next chapter, after, after the next, like, like we're a chapter away from Jesus being arrested and facing everything that he's talking about here. That he is the temple and he is about to be desecrated. And they're going to run and leave him there. But he's asking them to keep their faith. He's asking them to put your sword away. He's asking them to proclaim him as king. And he is going to be the first one to endure everything that he is talking about and bring about resurrection for salvation of the world. So he tells them all of this is going to happen. It's going to be difficult. Remember who your king is. And then he shows them who the king is and how it works. It's perfect. Matthew knows what he's doing. He's a preacher, I'm sure. Why don't we take communion? Um, let's, uh, let's bring the elements and, and scatter around the room. And uh, there's two elements. There's the body of Christ. There's the blood of Christ, which was poured out for the salvation of the world. It is our response to evil. Um, and it, and if, you're, uh, if you're new here, we don't, you don't have to be a member or anything. We want to invite you to take communion. Everyone's welcome at the table to take of the bread dip it in the wine and eat it. It's, a, it's, it's our way of taking part in the suffering of Christ. It's just symbolic. It's a good gift. And it's our declaration of this is how salvation enters into the world. The body of Christ has been broken for you. The blood of Christ has been poured out for you, for your salvation and for your healing. And we should do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Make us whole. Guide us into wholeness. Help us Help us to be a people that when the world looks at us, they actually see what Jesus was all about. Make it real in our lives. In your name, amen. While you're in communion, I have some book recommendations if you'd like to write them down, if you'd like to read a lot more.